with issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here, welcoming you to this week's Sunday Chops. The first Chops of February. Rejoice, for it is January no longer. There's a well-bowled daffodil already in my garden, and a crocus also clearly giving zero fucks about any forthcoming chilly spells. I salute them. I mean, I worry for them, but I also salute them. I also salute this week's guest, the frankly marvellous Joe Todd, CEO of Respect UK, which is a domestic abuse organisation with a focus on effective, safe work with perpetrators, while always centering the survivor. Joe has worked in the domestic abuse sector for several decades now and really knows her shit. We chatted about what safe, effective work with perpetrators looks like, the unhelpful narratives around domestic abusers in the media and that we all use in everyday life, why it's absolutely not a gender-neutral issue and how we all need to be involved in the huge societal shift needed to tackle domestic violence. Respect UK also works with male victims and young people who use violence and you can find loads of helpful information at respect.uk.net. It also runs a confidential helpline for domestic abuse perpetrators and those supporting them, where a team of specialised paid advisors listen without judgment and offer honest advice to help domestic abuse perpetrators stop being violent. If anything Joe and I talk about resonates with you or someone you know, you can contact the National Domestic Abuse Helpline 24-7 on 0808-2000-247 or online at nationaldahelpline.org.uk. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Joe Todd, CEO of Respect UK, a pioneering domestic abuse organisation developing safe, effective work with perpetrators, male victims and young people who use violence. Joe, hello. Hi. Now then, Joe, I should have chucked CVE on the end of your name there because you <laughs> received a CVE in recognition of your services to victims of domestic abuse at the end of last year. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I think whether you believe in the monarchy or how you feel about the monarchy, it's still really important that these kind of services are getting that kind of recognition, isn't it? I think that's one of the reasons I accepted it, actually, was that it feels like it's recognising my work, but the work of my colleagues, of respect as an organisation. It feels like we've become of age almost. Yeah, we were a very new organisation 20 odd years ago. Nobody really talked about perpetrators or focused on them so it feels like getting an award like that is recognizing everything that we do absolutely you're no stranger to this work you've been working in the women's sector in the domestic abuse sector for more than 30 years but i think the work that respect does will probably differ from what people usually associate with the domestic abuse sector mm. and you've been ceo of respect for 22 years now and were instrumental in getting it set up so can you tell us what respect does how it came about and why it's so important yeah sure so maybe going back in time a bit to to the whole domestic abuse movement was a very grassroots movement of women helping women you know recognizing that some were at risk of really serious harm and women were being killed and there was there was no support network um in the early 70s to to help so it made a lot of sense i think that the grassroots women's movement came about that was focused women helping women, but men weren't involved um, and there was no focus on men as perpetrators at all. Mm-hmm. 
But as things progressed you know, through the decades, I think it began to be clear that we've got to do something about the people causing the harm. It's not a problem that will go away just by helping the victims to get to safety. Mm-hmm. And often, actually, a woman might flee from a violent partner, but he'd track her that he'd want contact with children. And often the system supported that as well and still does. Or that she would go back to him because the pressures were too great. And sometimes it's safer to stay or go back than it is to leave. So, you know, I think there were quite a few people all around the same time thinking we've got to start asking the question, what are we doing with the men? What are we doing with the perpetrators? How are we stopping them? There were pockets of that work beginning to happen um, in, well, 1989 was the the first perpetrator programme in the UK. That was in Scotland. It doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. Um, Funding is always a struggle in in the sector as a whole, and it uh, is for us our bit of the sector too. But in the early 90s, people were beginning to think about, well, how would we do that work? How how would we do it in a way that's safe, in a way that puts women at the centre? I think that's really important. Yeah. As those organisations on the ground began to spring up, there was a need really for some coordination kind of national body. I like to think of us as the equivalent of of women's aid or rape crisis, that kind of umbrella organisation that holds a family of organisations together, you know, Mm -hmm. and that we're all working for the same cause, got a membership who are doing that work at the front line. They're often quite grassroots organisations as well. And and when things are working well, they're working really closely with their sister organisations that are refugees and and women's groups. Yeah, you've kind of touched on it there, Joe. that there, there is only ever one person responsible for domestic abuse, and that is the perpetrator. Yet they so often and still so often are left out of the conversation when it comes to preventing domestic abuse. When actually, it makes total sense that as well as centering the survivors and and ensuring their safety, we should be putting a hell of a lot of focus on challenging and changing the behaviour of the perpetrators, which I know is something that you do at Respect. So what does safe, effective work with perpetrators actually look like? I mean, you've hit the nail on the head with putting survivors at the centre, actually. That's the first principle for us. It's the kind of bedrock of our work. It's the bedrock of our decision making. So whether it's a frontline work, it's a case that you're working with an individual perpetrator, or whether it's a decision about policy work or, or fundraising, our question is always, how will this impact on survivors and their children? Mm-hmm. How can we be sure that this is safe for them, that is increasing their freedom as well as their safety, their uh, well-being, and make decisions on that basis? So everything in both respect and our member organisations should be focused around the survivor. So that's the first rule of good practice, really. Also, that work shouldn't be in isolation. You can't just run a therapy group with men um, in a village hall on, you know, in an evening, completely separate from all the other systems and processes that are out there. So there has to be a multi-agency approach. There has to be tapping in to domestic abuse forums and information sharing. Whatever the setup is in the local area, it varies from area to area. But the perpetrator programme should always be part of that. And what we're really talking about mostly is behaviour change work, or that's what the sector has focused on. So 
working with those men who've identified they've got a problem and want to do something about it. Uh-huh. What you can't do is force a man to change. And actually, there's no point trying. If, if he is not willing and able to change, then you're better off putting your resources somewhere else and focusing on, on the men that want to change. Yeah. I'm trying to think how many years ago it is now, 2015, however many years ago that is, eight years ago. About 87 years ago, it feels yeah. like. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? Pre-COVID, pre-everything. But yeah, about eight years ago, we began a partnership with Safe Lives and Social Finance called the Drive Project that is looking to a slightly different cohort. So if you think about perpetrators, if we took a snapshot today of all of those causing harm in in their homes and in their relationships in England and Wales or in the UK, that cohort would be a really diverse group. And within that, you would have some who were just starting to become abusive and you'd have some who were really embedded in high levels of harm being caused. What we wanted to do with Drive was focus on that kind of high harm cohort. And they're often not at the place of being able to change. They're often chaotic. They're often bouncing around different systems, criminal justice system, maybe in and out of mental health care or drug and alcohol services. You know, they're usually, but not always, bouncing around systems that aren't quite working for them, aren't stopping them from causing harm. And, and drive kind of focuses on on that cohort and having a stopping them from causing further harm approach rather than changing their behaviour approach. And so that includes working with other agencies to disrupt their ability to be abusive, to be violent, to get in the way of it, to put barriers in place, as well as thinking about what the survivor might need as well. So there's lots of different types of work happening with perpetrators now, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. There isn't a one-size-fits-all. We know there's still a lot to do. There's a lot of needs not being met. There's a lot of problems in terms of postcode lottery and geographic reach is, is really poor in some areas. They've got big areas of the country don't have any provision at all for perpetrator work, which seems a bit crazy, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and it's something we're, we're trying to change But slowly but surely, we are seeing government thinking and statutory agency thinking change. And I think part of it is the cost, actually. The government did their own analysis of domestic abuse. I don't know if you saw it, but it was a few years ago now. The estimate was that domestic abuse costs £66 billion a year. Fucking hell. I mean, it is an amazing figure. Yeah. And you would think, you know, it is a volume crime as well. It's a huge problem for policing. It's one of the big, you know, biggest crime areas. It's like one in ten crimes is domestic violence related, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's so it's really important in terms of cost to the public purse that we do something about this as well. You would hope that a sixty-six billion pound problem would have a sixty-six billion pound solution, but we're nowhere near that at the moment. Mm. But incrementally, I think we are beginning to push for more funding, more more coherent funding as well, joined up strategic funding, not just pockets here and there that don't work together. So we're beginning to see change, I think, and change in focus as well. So there will always be a need for refuge. I'm the first one at the barricade saying, you know, refuge is the first service you need a woman being able to flee to a place of safety and a man you know there are some men who are victims so 
So just making sure that you know, that provision is there is the bedrock of domestic abuse work. But once that's there, then we need to think about all the other things that are needed too. And we want to solve the problem for future generations as well. I'd like to think that we were contributing to less domestic abuse going forward. I think you absolutely are, but it's such a huge problem. And without the government, the party of the economy, putting in the cash to tackle the root cause of so many of the ills in our society, then you're just firefighting all the time. And firefighting is very, very important. And lots of brilliant organisations do it incredibly well. But fires are just going to keep popping up, I guess, unless we get that enormous funding and input. And like you say, join up the network instead of just having pockets working really, really hard and doing what they can and not tackling the root cause of the problem. I think as well as money, there's an accepted narrative around abusers like paedophiles and domestic violence and domestic homicide perpetrators that they're they're monsters. And I find that quite disturbing. I mean, Mm. to be clear, not a fan of their work at all. But I don't think othering problematic humans as monsters is is helpful. We've seen it in the papers recently after the David Carrick Met Police scandal has come to light. How many more monsters? And, you know, Kel Surprise mainstream media, it's not helpful language around domestic abuse. Absolutely. And I can tell you a story from very early on when I started work with perpetrators, because back in the day, I, I ran perpetrator groups myself. I'd come from the women's sector. I'd worked in women's refuges for quite a few years and then was interested in the perpetrator work and decided to get involved in that. And I had often said around the work that I'd been doing, these men aren't monsters. That's just what you've been saying. They're just ordinary men. Walk out into the street, go to a supermarket, go to a pub, have a look around. You can't spot them. You can't pick them out. There is no tattoo on their forehead telling you that they are a perpetrator. Whether or not you're in a, going into a relationship with them or, or whether you are the brother or mother of one of them, you, you know, it's not written large on their face. And I'd always said that. And then I walked into my first perpetrator group and I looked around and I thought, yes, I am right. That is right. These are just regular men. And to have that... You know, you would not spot them. They were a real, you know, just a cross section of men. You would never be able to pick them out. They were hiding in plain sight. A lot of times nobody was doing anything to challenge them Mm -hmm. or to disrupt them in their friendship group, in their workplace. You know, the places that they are, that they're frequenting. There was nothing to give them messages that what they were doing wasn't okay. Even when people were sometimes witnessing things that weren't okay, there was a real fear around how to approach them, what to do, will I make it worse? Mm-hmm. So often people might flock to the victim and, and talk to her, but nobody, you know, I think there is a narrative actually that if someone has, say, hit their wife, that you should cut yourself off from them somehow, punish them. Mm. Isolating them is probably going to make things worse yeah. so I think it's a really difficult conundrum if it's happening in your friendship group or in your family of what to do for the best because everyone's terrified of making things worse but sometimes that inaction makes things worse so yeah. I think we need more conversation about challenging the, just the, the way that men behave within our social circles within our workplaces within the places that we go and how to do that 
But yeah, they absolutely are not monsters, apart from one or two. And I would say in the time I worked with perpetrators, there were one or two that gave me chills. Yeah. They were I could feel fear of being in the room with them. Yeah. They were rare. They exist, but they were rare. So we, what we're talking about is actually, I mean, I said a volume issue, that's that's police talk, that's, you know, that's technical language. But what we mean is it's everywhere, it's prevalent. Yep. It, it is happening. You do know men who are abusive to their partners. Everyone listening to this knows men. You may not know that you know them, but you do. That includes me, that includes you. We, yep. we all do. And that's quite challenging, isn't it? Because often these men are also funny and kind in other areas of their life and charming and and so it's counterintuitive sometimes and it's difficult to address but we have to we have to question the structures of masculinity and femininity that are in our culture at the moment we can't get away from the fact that so many men are doing this to so many women we have to understand why that is we have to understand when women do it to men, what, what that's like as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're not going to help anyone by pretending that it's a gender-neutral issue. No, I totally agree with that you. That it's, yeah. an, you know, there's an equality in perpetration. There isn't. We know that when men cause harm, it's often more serious, more severe injuries as well. You know, and of course, the homicide statistics as well speak for themselves. Joe, I was I was a big fan of your forehead tattoo idea, if I'm honest with you. I think that might be helpful. <laughs> but at the same time, I appreciate that it isn't helpful because I imagine all of this narrative as well to, to uncomfortably put myself in the shoes of a, a perpetrator or someone who is worried he is going to become violent. It makes it so much harder to want to stop, to seek help. And I love that Respect has put something into place for that. So I I was hoping that you could tell us about the Respect phone line. Yeah, sure. I just wanted to pick up on the violence issue as well, though, because you just triggered me to think. Violence is a mechanism. Violence is what men do to maintain control. Mm. Control is the centre of domestic abuse. And that's really important because the messages that we give to men and have done throughout history is that you are in control in the family. You are the one that makes the decision. You are the one that gets their way. And, you know, and there are lots of people now that have questioned that and are, are having relationships in different ways. But that underpins a man's belief. And it's often an unconscious one, but it's percolating there. Yeah. That he has a right to make decisions in the family. He has an entitlement to That's services from his partner. Yeah. And so I think that's at the heart of what we're talking about. The phrase coercive control has been used a lot recently because it became part of our legislative framework mm-hmm. a few years ago. Um, but sometimes people separate off coercive control as if there's domestic abuse and coercive control is one form of it. Coercive control is everything. It's the heart of domestic abuse. Violence doesn't happen randomly for no reason. It happens in a productive way to get a result and the result is often stopping someone from doing something or making them do something. I interviewed the brilliant Jane Monkton Smith about her book Coercive Control and it yeah Yeah. it is at the heart of all heart seems a weird word to use around this but it is at the centre 
of all of yeah. this. And we're trying to dismantle centuries of men being told that, yeah, that you own women, it's your right to do what you want with them, you own your kids, it's your right to do what you want with them. This isn't an easy fix. Yeah, exactly. And so that that kind of narrative, I think, that needs to shift, that's a, that's a big societal thing that needs to happen. That's not just something we can fix overnight. It needs everyone's ideas, thoughts and activity. You asked me about the respect phone line. I mean, I would say this, but I think it's a, a brilliant service mm. that it's a confidential phone line that if anyone is worried about their own behaviour in their relationship, they can ring, talk to an advisor. They're really specialists. We don't use volunteers, actually, because it's such an important piece of work that needs real skill, actually. So we have our paid advisors on the line who will talk through where they're at, point them in the right direction, hopefully motivate them that they can change, that they can stop, but also as that gateway through to our accredited members and, and hopefully moving them towards getting a, on a behaviour change programme and, and making real change. We've got a website as well, but there's quite a lot of resources on, on that website as well. There's a chat function because we're very 21st century. Um, <laughs> you have to be. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, but it, you know, sometimes people don't feel confident actually speaking to a, a person in real time as their first step. So just being able to have that web chat, just being able to type um, is really important, I think. Maybe I think this because I'm a writer, but I think sometimes seeing the words in front of you can be a real revelation moment. Oh, shit, that, that is it. That's it. I can see it. Instead of it all swirling around yeah. in your brain, you put it down in writing. It feels a bit more concrete. Yeah. So the crime survey for England and Wales estimated that 5% of adults, which breaks down as 6.9% of women and 3% of men, aged 16 years and over, experienced domestic abuse in the year ending March 2022. This equates to an estimated 1.7 million women and 699,000 men. Obviously, Joe, something needs to shift. What would you like to see happening in terms of policy and within communities around domestic abuse? Big question. Yeah, it's a big question, Joe. Huge question. We've been talking about quite a lot of it, haven't we? I think obviously there's individual change needs to happen. Mm -hmm. The people that are creating those statistics, the perpetrators, need to stop, need to change. But we need systems change as well. We need the agencies that come into contact with those people to really know what they're doing, to be experts in this, because it's a big part of their work. I think, I'm not great at stats, but I think the children's social care workload, it's about 80% of their, wow. their caseload includes domestic abuse. Obviously, policing, we know, we've already discussed it, so it's a huge issue. But there isn't a single statutory agency where this isn't part of their bread and butter, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so they should have really clear models of work. And that's what's expected of, of me as the voluntary sector organisation. When I want funding for something, I've got to be really clear about what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, how we know it's effective, what's the evidence base, what's the safety protocols, where's safeguarding, all of those things have to be worked out. I find it a bit mind-boggling that some statutory agencies haven't done the same. You know, if you go to a GP and actually men's help seeking, there was a research into men's help seeking, is that 
when they're a perpetrator of domestic abuse, the place they're most likely to go to is their GP for help. That's interesting. Yeah. That research was 2006. And what it found was that GPs didn't know what to do with them when they came to them. And people don't tend to go to their GP and say, I'm a perpetrator of domestic abuse. I'd like to go on a behaviour change programme. Every now and again, but, but most of them will talk in code. And so the GP needs to be able to decipher that code in the same way they might with a physical health problem, I think. So, you know, they need to be able to decipher when someone says things aren't great at home. I get a bit angry sometimes. We have a lot of arguments. When they're coming to the GP and saying things like that, there needs to be a process of checking out what that actually means, Uh identifying if their behaviour is a problem, and then having a pathway to getting the right help in the same way you would do if someone went with chest pain. Yeah. Yeah, there should be the same kind of protocols. There's loads that health can do, even if the, you know, the GP isn't the person that solves the problem, but they are the person that can identify it and put someone on the right path. So instead of giving them pills for depression or, or sending them to anger management, or counselling, you know, general counselling, that they actually recognise this is domestic abuse. This needs a specialist domestic abuse response. And this is somewhat, and, and obviously, ideally, then they need that resource in the community that they can refer into as well. Yeah. I mean, I've just picked health as, as one example, but I could have picked anything else. I could have picked children's services or, you know, loads of different places where I'd like to see, you know, national guidance i'd like to see inspections whenever there is a thematic inspection in, in any of these big agencies on domestic abuse it's always really interesting there's one happening um, with probation at the moment it's live we haven't got the results of that yet but they're doing a deep dive into how probation deals with domestic abuse and, and i sit on the advisory board for that along with some of my sister organization colleagues but you know it's always really interesting to see are these big organisations dealing with domestic abuse in a coherent, strategic way or not? Joe, there's so much to work with and to look at, and it just yeah. makes it even more frustrating that, you know, the government and policymakers aren't doing more when it seems like some fairly simple solutions are at our fingertips. There is a donate button on the Respect website. Listeners, if you can afford to chuck a few quid that way, it is an excellent organisation doing incredible work and you will find it at respect.uk.net. Joe, thank you so much for chatting with me. Where can people find you on social media to find out more about what you're up to, please? Yeah, I'm on Twitter um, for my sins. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> Joe Top 4 on Twitter. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and chatting with me. Thanks. It's been really nice. Thanks, Nikki. If anything we've talked about resonates with you or someone you know, you can contact the National Domestic Abuse Helpline 24-7 on 0808 247 or online at nationaldahelpline.org.uk. Standard issue for all women.